0: Chapter three of Green Mantle version two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's audiobooks dot com. Green Mantle version two by John Buckham. Chapter three. Peter Pienaar. Our various departures were unassuming, all but the Americans. "'Sandy spent a busy fortnight in his subterranean fashion, now in the British Museum, now running "'about the country to see old exploring companions, now at the war office, now at "'the foreign office, but mostly in my flat, sunk in an armchair, and meditating. "'He left finally on December 1st as a king's messenger for Cairo. "'Once there I knew the king's messenger would disappear.' and some queer Oriental ruffian take his place. It would have been impertinence in me to inquire into his plans. He was the real professional, and I was only the dabbler. Blenkiron was a different matter. Sir Walter told me to look out for squalls, and the twinkle in his eye gave me a notion of what was coming. The first thing the sportsman did was to write a letter to the papers signed with his name there had been a debate in the House of Commons on foreign policy, and the speech of some idiot there gave him his cue. He declared that he had been heart and soul with the British at the start, but that he was reluctantly compelled to change his views. He said our blockade of Germany had broken all the laws of God and humanity, and he reckoned that Britain was now the worst exponent of Prussianism going. That letter made a fine racket, and the paper that printed it had a row with the censor. But that was only the beginning of Mr. Blenkiron's campaign. He got mixed up with some mountebanks called the League of Democrats Against Aggression, gentlemen who thought that Germany was all right if we could only keep from hurting her feelings. He addressed a meeting under their auspices, which was broken up by the crowd, but not before John S. had got off his chest a lot of amazing stuff. I wasn't there, but a man who was told me that he never heard such clotted nonsense. He said that Germany was right in wanting the freedom of the seas, and that America would back her up, and that the British Navy was a bigger menace to the peace of the world than the Kaiser's army. He admitted that he had once thought differently, but he was an honest man and not afraid to face facts." The oration closed suddenly when he got a Brussels sprout in the eye at which my friend said he swore in a very unpacifist style. After that he wrote other letters to the press, saying that there was no more liberty of speech in England, and a lot of scallywags backed him up. Some Americans wanted to tar and feather him, and he got kicked out of the Savoy. There was an agitation to get him deported and questions were asked in Parliament, and the Under-Secretary for Foreign Affairs said his department had the matter in hand. I was beginning to think that Blenkiron was carrying his tomfoolery too far, so I went to see Sir Walter, but he told me to keep my mind easy. "'Our friend's motto is thorough,' he said, "'and he knows very well what he is about. We have officially requested him to leave, and he sails from Newcastle on Monday.' He will be shadowed wherever he goes, and we hope to provoke more outbreaks. He is a very capable fellow. The last I saw of him was on the Saturday afternoon when I met him in St. James's Street and offered to shake hands. He told me that my uniform was a pollution and made a speech to a small crowd about it. They hissed him and he had to get into a taxi. As he departed there was just a suspicion of a wink in his left eye. On Monday I read that he had gone off, and the papers observed that our shores were well quit of him. I sailed on December 3rd from Liverpool in a boat bound for the Argentine that was due to put in at Lisbon. I had, of course, to get a foreign office passport to leave England, but after that my connection with the government ceased. All the details of my journey were carefully thought out. Lisbon would be a good jumping-off place for it was the rendezvous of scallywags from most parts of Africa. My kit was an old gladstone bag, and my clothes were the relics of my South African wardrobe. I let my beard grow for some days before I sailed, and since it grows fast I went on board with the kind of hairy chin you will see on the young boar. My name was now Brant, Cornelius Brant, at least so my passport said, and passports never lie. There were just two other passengers on that beastly boat, and they never appeared till we were out of the bay. I was pretty bad myself but managed to move about all the time, for the frost in my cabin would have sickened the hippo. The old tub took two days and a night to waddle from Oshon to Finisterre. Then the weather changed and we came out of snow squalls into something very like summer. The hills of Portugal were all blue and yellow like the Kalahari, and before we made the Tagus I was beginning to forget I had ever left Rhodesia. There was a Dutchman among the sailors with whom I used to patter the tall, and but for good morning and good evening in broken English to the captain, that was all the talking I did on the cruise. We dropped anchor off the quays of Lisbon on a shiny blue morning, pretty near warm enough to wear flannels. I had now got to be very wary. I did not leave the ship with the shore-going boat, but made a leisurely breakfast then i strolled on deck and there just casting anchor in the middle of the stream was another ship with a blue and white funnel i knew so well i calculated that a month before she had been smelling the mangrove swamps of angola nothing could better answer my purpose i proposed to board her pretending i was looking for a friend and come on shore from her so that anyone in lisbon who chose to be curious would think i had landed straight from Portuguese Africa. I hailed one of the ancient ruffians and got into his rowboat with my kit. We reached the vessel. They called her the Henry the Navigator, just as the first shoreboat was leaving. The crowd in it were all Portuguese, which suited my book. But when I went up the ladder, the first man I met was old Peter Pienaar. Here was a piece of sheer monumental luck. Peter had opened his eyes and his mouth and had got as far as Allemachtig when I shut him up. "'Brant,' I said. "'Cornelius Brant, That's my name now, and don't you forget it. Who is the captain here? Is it still old Sloggett?' "'Ja,' yeah, said Peter, pulling himself together. "'He was speaking about you yesterday.' This was better and better. I sent Peter below to get a hold of Sloggett, and presently I had a few words with that gentleman in his cabin with the door shut. "'You've got to enter my name in the ship's books.' I came aboard at Mossamedes, and my name's Cornelius Brock. At first Sloggett was for objecting. He said it was a felony. I told him that I dared say it was, but he had got to do it for reasons which I couldn't give, but which were highly credible to all parties. In the end he agreed, and I saw it done. I had a pull on old Sloggett, for I had known him ever since he owned a dissolute tugboat at Delagoa Bay. Then Peter and I went ashore and swaggered into Lisbon as if we owned De Beers. We put up at a big hotel opposite the railway station and looked and behaved like a pair of low-bred South Africans home for a spree. It was a fine bright day, so I hired a motor car and said I would drive it myself. We asked the name of some beauty spot to visit and were told Sintra and shown the road to it. I wanted a quiet place to talk, for I had a good deal to say to Peter Pienaar. I christened that car the Lusitanian Terror, and it was a marvel that we did not smash ourselves up. There was something immortally wrong with its steering gear. Half a dozen times we slewed across the road, inviting destruction. But we got there in the end and had luncheon in a hotel opposite the Moorish Palace. There we left the car and wandered up the slopes of a hill, where, sitting among scrub very like the veld, I told Peter the situation of affairs. But first a word must be said about Peter. He was the man that taught me all I ever knew of veldcraft and a good deal about human nature besides. He was out of the old colony, Burgersdorp, I think, but he had come to the Transvaal when the Leidendorf goldfields started. He was prospector, transport-rider, and hunter in turns, but principally hunter. In those early days he was none too good a citizen. He was in Swaziland with Bob McNabb, and you know what that means. Then he took to working off bogus gold propositions on Kimberley and Johannesburg magnets, and what he didn't know about salting a mine wasn't knowledge. After that he was in the Kalahari, where he and Scotty Smith were familiar names." an era of comparative respectability dawned for him with the Bell war when he did uncommon good scouting and transport work cecil rhodes wanted to establish him on a stock farm down salisbury way but peter was an independent devil and would call no man master he took to big game hunting which was what god intended him for for he could track a sesame in thick bush and was far the finest shot i have seen in my life He took parties to the Punjui Flans and Baratsi land and up to Tanganyika. Then he made a specialty of the Nagami region where I once hunted with him, and he was with me when I went prospecting in De When the Boer War started, Peter, like many of the very great hunters, took the British side and did most of our intelligence work in the North Transvaal. Byers would have hanged him if he could have caught him, and there was no love lost between Peter and his own people for many a day. When it was all over and things had calmed down a bit, he settled in Bulawayo and used to go with me when I went on trek. At the time when I left Africa two years before, I had lost sight of him for months and heard that he was somewhere on the Congo poaching elephants. He had always a great idea of making things hum so loud in Angola that the Union government would have to step in and annex it. After Rhodes, Peter had the biggest notions south of the line." he was a man of about five foot ten very thin and active and strong as a buffalo he had pale blue eyes a face as gentle as a girl's and a soft sleepy voice from his present appearance it looked as if he had been living hard lately his clothes were of the cut you might expect to get at lobido bay he was as lean as a rake deeply browned with the sun and there was a lot of gray in his beard he was fifty-six years old and used to be taken for forty. Now he looked about his age. I first asked him what he had been up to since the war began. He spat in the kaffir way he had, and said he had been having hell's time. I got hung up in the Kafu, he said. When I heard from old Lysatella that the white men were fighting, I had a bright idea that I might get into German southwest from the north. You see, I knew that Botha couldn't long keep out of the war." "'Well, I got into German territory all right, and then a skellum of an officer came along and commandeered all my mules and wanted to commandeer me with them for his fool army. He was a very ugly man with a yellow face.' Peter filled a deep pipe from a kudaskin skin pouch. "'Were you commandeered?' I asked. "'No. I shot him, not so as to kill, but to wound badly. It was all right, for he had fired first on me. Got me too in the left shoulder.' but that was the beginning of bad trouble. I trekked east pretty fast and got over the border, among the Ovamba. I have made many journeys, but that was the worst. Four days I went without water and six without food. Then, by bad luck, I fell in with Nikitla. You remember the half-caste chief? He said I owed him money for cattle which I bought when I came there with Karawab. It was a lie, but he held to it and would give me no transport. So I crossed the Kalahari on my feet, uh, it was as slow as a brew coming from nakmal It took weeks and weeks, and when I came to Leckwee's kraal, I heard that the fighting was over and that Botha had conquered the Germans. That, too, was a lie, but it deceived me, and I went north into Rhodesia where I learned the truth. But by then I judged the war had gone too far for me to make any profit out of it, so I went into Angola to look for German refugees. By that time I was hating Germans worse than hell. "'But what did you propose to do with them?' I asked. "'I had a notion they would make trouble with the government in those parts. "'I don't specially love the Port-a-Goose, "'but I'm for him against the Germans every day. "'Well, there was trouble, and I had a merry time for a month or two. "'But by and by it petered out, "'and I thought I had better clear for Europe, "'for South Africa was settling down, "'just as the big show was getting really interesting. "'So here I am, Cornelius, my old friend.' "'If I shave my beard, will they let me join the Flying Corps?' I looked at Peter sitting there smoking, as imperturbable as if he had been growing mealies in the all his life, and had run home for a month's holiday with his people in Peckham. "'You're coming with me, my lad,' I said. "'We're going into Germany.' Peter showed no surprise. "'Keep in mind that I don't like the Germans,' was all he said. "'I'm a quiet Christian man, but I've the devil of a temper.' Then I told him the story of our mission. You and I have got to be Maritz's men. We went into Angola, and now we're trekking for the fatherland to get a bit of our own back from the infernal English. Neither of us knows any German publicly. We'd better plan out the fighting we were in. Kikamis will do for you and Drift. You were a Gamaliland hunter before the war. They won't have your dossier, so you can tell any lie you like. "'I'd better be an educated Afrikaner, one of Byer's bright lads, and a pal of old Herzog. "'We can let our imagination loose about that part, but we must stick to the same yarn about the fighting.' "'Ja, yeah, Cornelius,' said Peter. "'He had called me Cornelius ever since I had told him my new name. "'He was a wonderful chap for catching on to any game. "'But after we get into Germany, what then? "'There can't be much difficulty about the beginning.' but once we're among the beer swillers, I don't quite see our line. We're to find out about something that's going on in Turkey. When I was a boy, the Predacant used to preach about Turkey. I wish I was better educated and remembered whereabouts in the map it was. You leave that to me, I said. I'll explain it all to you before we get there. We haven't got much of a spoor, but we'll cast about, and with luck we'll pick it up. I've seen you do it often enough when we hunted Kudu on the Kafu. Peter nodded. "'Do we sit still in a German town?' he asked anxiously. "'I shouldn't like that, Cornelius.' "'We move gently eastward to Constantinople,' I said. Peter grinned. "'We should cover a lot of new country. You can reckon on me, friend Cornelius. I've always had a hankering to see Europe.' He rose to his feet and stretched his long arms. "'We'd better begin at once. God, I wonder what's happened to old Solly Moritz with his bottle-face.' Yon was a fine battle at the drift when I was sitting up to my neck in the orange, praying that Britz lads would take my head for a stone. Peter was as thorough as a mantebank when he got started as Blenkiron himself. All the way back to Lisbon he yarned about Moritz and his adventures in the German Southwest till I half believed they were true. He made a very good story of our doings, and by his constant harping on it I pretty soon got it into my memory." that was peter's way he said if you were going to play a part you must think yourself into it convince yourself that you were it till you really were it and didn't act but behaved naturally the two men who had started that morning from the hotel door had been bogus enough but the two men that returned were genuine desperadoes itching to get a shot at england we spent the evening piling up evidence in our favor Some kind of republic had been started in Portugal, and ordinarily the cafés would have been full of politicians, but the war had quieted all these local squabbles, and the talk was of nothing but what was doing in France and Russia. The place we went to was a big, well-lighted show on a main street, and there were a lot of sharp-eyed fellows wandering about that I guess were spies and police agents. I knew that Britain was the one country that doesn't bother about this kind of game, and that it would be safe enough to let ourselves go. I talked Portuguese fairly well, and Peter spoke it like a Lorenco Marquis barkeeper, with a lot of Shangan words to fill up. He started on Kuryako, which I reckon was a new drink to him, and presently his tongue ran freely. Several neighbors pricked up their ears, and soon we had a small crowd round our table. We talked to each other of Maritz and our doings, it didn't seem to be a popular subject in that café. One big blue-black fellow said that Moritz was a dirty swine who would soon be hanged. Peter quickly caught his knife wrist with one hand and his throat with the other, and demanded an apology. He got it. The Lisbon boulevardiers had not lost any lines. After that there was a bit of a squash in our corner. Those near to us were very quiet and polite, but the outer fringe made remarks when peter said that if portugal which he admitted he loved was going to stick to england she was backing the wrong horse there was a murmur of disapproval one decent-looking old fellow who had the air of a ship's captain flushed all over his honest face and stood up looking straight at peter i saw that we had struck an englishman and mentioned it to peter and dutch peter played his part perfectly he suddenly shut up and with furtive looks around him began to jabber to me in a low voice. He was the very picture of the old stage conspirator. The old fellow stood staring at us. I don't very well understand this damn lingo, he said, but if so be you dirty Dutchman are saying anything against England, I'll ask you to repeat it, and if so be as you repeats it, I'll take either of you on and knock the face off him. He was a chap after my own heart, but I had to keep the game up. I said in Dutch to Peter that we mustn't get brawling in a public house. Remember the big thing, I said darkly. Peter nodded, and the old fellow, after staring at us for a bit, spat scornfully and walked out. The time is coming when the Englander will sing small, I observed to the crowd. We stood drinks to one or two and then swaggered into the street. At the door a hand touched my arm, and looking down I saw a little scrap of a man in a fur coat. Will the gentleman walk a step with me and drink a glass of beer, he said in very stiff Dutch. Who the devil are you, I asked. Gotstreif England was his answer, and turning back the lapel of his coat he showed some kind of ribbon in his buttonhole. Amen, said Peter. Lean on, friend. We don't mind if we do. He led us to a back street and then up two pairs of stairs to a very snug little flat. The place was filled with fine red lacquer, and I guessed that art-dealing was his nominal business. Portugal, since the Republic broke up the convents and sold up the big royalist grandees, was full of bargains in the lacquer and curio line. He filled us two long tankards of very good Munich beer. "'Prossit,' he said, raising his glass. "'You are from South Africa. What make you in Europe?' We both looked sullen and secretive. That's our own business,' I answered. You don't expect to buy our confidence with a glass of beer. So, he said, then I will put it differently. From your speech in the cafe, I judge you do not love the English. Peter said something about stamping on their grandmothers a Kaffir phrase which sounded gruesome in Dutch. The man laughed. That is all I want to know. You are on the German side? That remains to be seen, I said. If they treat me fair, I'll fight for them, or for anybody else that makes war on England england has stolen my country and corrupted my people and made me an exile we Africaners do not forget we may be slow but we win in the end we too are men worth a great price germany fights england in east africa we know the natives as no englishman can ever know them they are too soft and easy and the kaffirs laugh at them but we can handle the blacks so that they will fight like devils for fear of us What is the reward, little man, for our services? I will tell you. There will be no reward. We ask none. We fight for hate of England. Peter grunted a deep approval. That is good talk, said our entertainer, and his close-set eyes flashed. There is room in Germany for such men as you. Where are you going now? I beg to know. To Holland, I said. Then maybe we will go to Germany. We are tired with travel and may rest a bit. This war will last long, and our chance will come. "'But you may miss your market,' he said significantly. "'A ship sails to-morrow for Rotterdam. If you take my advice, you will go with her.' This was what I wanted, for if we stayed in Lisbon some real soldier of Moritz might drop in any day and blow the gaff. "'I recommend you to sail in the Machado,' he repeated. "'There is work for you in Germany. Oh, yes, much work. But if you delay, the chance may pass.' I will arrange your journey. It is my business to help the allies of my fatherland. He wrote down our names and an epitome of our doings contributed by Peter, who required two mugs of beer to help him through. He was a Bavarian, it seemed, and we drank to the health of Prince Rubrecht, the same blighter I was trying to do in at Los. That was an irony which Peter unfortunately could not appreciate. If he could, he would have enjoyed it the little chap saw us back to our hotel and was with us the next morning after breakfast bringing the steamer tickets we got on board about two in the afternoon but on my advice he did not see us off i told him that being british subjects and rebels at that we did not want to run any risks on board assuming a british cruiser caught us up and searched us But peter took twenty pounds off him for travelling expenses, it being his rule never to miss an opportunity of spoiling the Egyptians. As we were dropping down the Tagus, we passed the old Henry the Navigator. I met Sloggett in the street this morning, said peter, and he told me a little German man had been off in a boat at daybreak looking up the passenger list. Yon was a right notion of yours, Cornelius. I am glad we are going among Germans. They are careful people whom it is a pleasure to meet. End of Chapter Three. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's dot com.